Uh, my name, if you don't know me, I'm Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. <clears throat> Glad that you're here with us. Um, this is uh, the last Sunday that David and Kylie Friedrichs are going to be with us. Um, they're moving to Nashville, if you didn't know that. Um, David was nominated to be a deacon by the congregation. He is fleeing the call. Um, um, he's, he's gotten offered a good job in Nashville, and, and they need to take it. So we're, we're going to sadly have to say goodbye to them. Um, so make sure you actually say goodbye to them. I, they are, this is their last Sunday. They're going to be gone by the end of the week. Um, David is somebody that I met when he first came as a student to Montreat, um, what feels like ages ago. I don't even remember when it was, eight years ago or something like that? 2000 what? Nine. Gosh, wow, 11 years ago. Um, and uh, I, I was not the pastor of Valley Hope at the time. I, I did some stuff for Valley Hope um, with college students. And David, um, one of the things that always made me laugh, sometimes at him, um, was how serious everything was for him. Um, Everything, everything was so serious, and I just was constantly telling him to relax. Um, and that seriousness has matured like a, a fine wine. And so that now one of the best things that I can say about David is how serious he is. He's really serious about following Jesus, about serving other people, about the work that he does and it is a real pleasure to know him. Um, I was excited when he moved back two years ago. I wish we had 18 more years of him before he moved on. And the best thing that he's done in the time that he, between leaving Montreat as a student and coming back and, and working here, is he uh, found a wife way outside of his league and who loves him perfectly in the way that he needs to be loved. Um, and has been a significant part of that maturing process. Um, we're going to miss both of them very much. Um, you, if you were here last week, you heard Kylie's voice up here, and she has many gifts of her own, which are only sur surpassed by her character. Um, they're wonderful people. One of the hardest things about being pastor of this church is that we often have to say goodbye to people. It's just the nature of where we live, and... Um, it's the hardest thing to do as a pastor is to say goodbye to people. Um, but we really believe in sending people and not just losing them. So we're sending them back to Nashville. Um, they're welcome to be unsent and come back anytime they'd like. But we believe that who they are is important, not just for us, but for the whole world. And apparently the next part of that is Nashville. So good for Nashville. And uh, hopefully this sending comes with a return postage on it, and, and they'll once again come back to us. Um, so I'd like to pray for them. Uh, if you could sort of stick out your hand that way, we'll kind of metaphorically lay hands on them. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Friedrichs, and we thank you for everything that you've given uh, to us through them, um, the way they've 
served and loved our kids the way that they've loved us and been friends with us, the way that they've served and loved Montreal students. God, I pray that you would bless them, that you would uh, send them in your love, that they would go with a sense of excitement, knowing that uh, you are already there in Nashville ahead of them. I pray, God, that you would uh, multiply the works of their hands as they work for your kingdom in Nashville. God, I pray that many, many, many people will come uh, to hear of the good news of Jesus because they see the good news all over their life and the way they live it and love others. We thank you, Jesus. Would you just uh, bless them with uh, provision and, and friendships and spiritual care and all that they do in that place to the praise of your name, God. Amen. Amen. We are, we are in this series in Isaiah, and, and you've, if you've been with us, you know that we're not covering every chapter in Isaiah. We are kind of going sequentially for a few weeks here before we come to uh, the season of Advent, which is quickly coming upon us. This is in a little uh, section of Isaiah that's um, this vision of things to come of what God will do in the world. Um, and we read what that looks like in Isaiah 25, where God is going to undo the power of death in the world. Um, and this is a description of our wait for him to do that. So I'm going to just read this chapter, and we'll be on our way. I'll try to keep myself on task. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked... He does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. 
like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth. And the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall rise. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in, our, in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to hear it. We pr- I pray that we would receive it, that our hearts would be soft and open to you, and that we would be called to, to new life again in you, Revive us by your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. This, uh, this passage starts with a song, and, and if you were been with us, then you know that Isaiah kind of alternates between song and prophecy, and he starts with this song of the day when the strong city has fallen, which is good news, because the strong city that he's talking about is a bad city. It's a strong city that oppresses people. It's the city that he mentioned before in Isaiah 24 and 25 that is arrayed against and the, uh, he's, they're an enemy of God. They oppose God. So that city is fallen in this song. And so that, that city has fallen, open the gates, everybody party, good news. God has crushed the city. It says he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground and casts it to the dust. And then he uses that and said, actually, the people who now walk on the dust of that city are the people, the poor, the needy, the weak, and the frail, trample over this formerly strong city. And then after the song, you sort of get a description of the hunger for that day. You hear... In this, a description of a people who are waiting for the promised deliverance to come. So the song is a glimpse forward. The the description that follows after that is sort of more where we are and where Israel is as Isaiah is describing it. And what he is describing is longing for God to come and make the world right. He says that uh, the Lord is in the midst of the world and nobody even notices it. That though God can establish the righteous ways in the world, the wicked are in the world ignoring what God has said and they succeed. They thrive. It says that God's majesty is there and they miss it. And so what the people in this second portion of the chapter are saying is like, we want you to fix this and unveil it so that all the people who are actively opposing you, all the people who are succeeding in the ways they should not be able to succeed, they will be unveiled and God will then do this thing where the city is brought to ruin. 
so that the kingdom of God would be unveiled. And they use this kind of imagery to describe this waiting and hungering and longing. The, probably the, the most vivid in this, if you caught it, was that they said, we have been like a pregnant woman. We have been like a woman who is laboring, deep in labor, writhing in pain and in agony. And all this time, we thought that at the end of our labor, there would be a baby that was coming. And all that we've delivered so far is nothing. The wind is what we have given birth to. When, oh God, will you come and deliver the baby? When will you come and bring the end goal, the desired result? There is a hunger and an anticipation. And as, uh, as you read this, this song, the hopeful anticipation of what God will do, the thing that God is promising that he will do, you can hear in the verses that follow the, to- the sense of total inability to bring it about. God has to be the one that crushes the strong city. And all of our striving brings nothing of it about. There is a kind of futility in the text. Like where, where do we turn? What do we do? To whom do we go to partner? And that what they, the image is, they've kind of surveyed the land for some allies. And they can't find any. And what they'll acknowledge freely about themselves in the text is all of the good works that we've actually done, you've actually accomplished them. It's not even been me. It's, it's been you. It's not Israel. It's God that has accomplished them. So when, God, will you come and act on our behalf and do this thing that we're faithfully, in faith, singing that you will do? This, uh, this text invites us then into a kind of examination of our own lives and the world around us and what we do as we engage the world. As we engage the world, we also should be the kind of people that say, it it would be great if the majesty of God was unveiled. It would be great if everyone could see the truth that we have set our hopes on. We have put our trust in this thing. We have confidence in this thing. And nobody else seems to see it. It would be great if they would. And in, in Isaiah 26, 8, he says, The thing that we're longing for is the name and renown of God, the remembrance of God to be about in the world. If we would be that kind of people as we look at the world, we should see, similar to Isaiah and the people of Israel, that we have no path forward, it seems, to bring about this thing that we are longing for. And yet the response for us, and I think the response for Israel, is often to leave aside that feeling of futility, to leave aside that feeling of discomfort, profound discomfort in the world, and to just distract ourselves with what we can accomplish, the accomplishments of our lives is what we often find our shelter in. I can't control the whole world, right? I can't. 
But I can control these things. And these things make me profoundly happy. These things make me feel good. Now, in some ways, this kind of choice is, is, a, uh, is an emotionally healthy choice. Like if you are constantly surveying all the news in the whole world and saying, how do I fix everything? Well, you should not do that, okay? Because you're not going to be able to fix everything and what you're going to end up being is a depressed and broken person. I'm not saying to look at the whole world and to say, how must I personally come to bring resolution to that? However, the, the alternative kind of instinct that we have, especially in our culture of many and distraction and loud noises, is that we can say, all that matters to me are the things that I can do and the comfort that I can bring to myself. It is easy for us to have the eyes of our heart turn only inward and to be incredibly and completely satisfied with the things that we have decided mean most to us. For some of us, it is things. It is consuming things, buying things, owning things. And whether you would say it explicitly or not, you know that the best, happiest distraction in your life is the purchase of, collection of, building of things. That's a real danger in our culture because we live in the most consumeristic culture in the world. In possibly all of human history, everything is pushing us that way. And if you would put your hand up and say, yeah, that's, that's maybe probably me to a degree that I am really disappointed in myself, you would probably be joining 300 million Americans in raising their hand and saying, I have found profound comfort in myself and the things that I can put, purchase for myself in the face of instead being profoundly disappointed with the world. You can invest yourself in people in the words of other people, the opinions of other people, the way that they do approve of you, the way that they don't approve of you, the love of your family even and your friends. And you can totally shut out the equation, the kind of questioning that Isaiah 26 is engaging in because you can say, I'm not even going to ask the question of where God is. I'm going to ask, where is my wife? Where is my spouse? Where is my girlfriend? Where is my child? And what I will care about is what they will say about me. And as long as I have them and I am locked into this world with them, then I don't have to deal with these larger questions that Isaiah 26 is asking. It could be uh, your hope, your comfort has been found uh, in, in the words, the deliverance that would maybe come from another cause. If we could just accomplish this one cause, if we could accomplish this one political goal or charitable goal, then that thing, that is how I have this sort of benchmark and ruler of hope. If I can make one bit of progress towards that goal, then everything will be all right in the world. And what Isaiah 26 and passages like it does is it gets into that sort of supreme nest of comfort that we have built for ourselves and says, you don't get to have it. No. 
If you are rightly paying attention, you should be in this world discomforted. You should be uncomfortable with the way that things are. And you should, in fact, be like Israel, asking the question, God, when will you come do the thing that only you can do? I was um, talking yesterday um, with many of you know Matt and Katie Duke um, that used to be members of our church and they moved, they bought some property out in uh, Burnsville and they're, they're in this long project of, of small farming, carving out of this mountain property, uh, this sort of small ecosystem of, of sustainable agriculture. So they're working and working and working uh, on this land. And I, my mother-in-law was there. My mother-in-law is a dairy farmer. And she is also in the project of agriculture on a much larger scale. They've been dairy farming for 40 years now. And they have survived in a community that has lost literally every other dairy farmer. 16 of them have gone out of businesses in all of their years farming. They're the only ones left in their town in Michigan. And to do that, they've had to get, they've had to get much bigger. And that's just the only way that they can survive is to be a much larger farm than they've ever thought they would be. Frankly, much larger than they ever wanted to be. And they're both talking from opposite ends of the spectrum of farming. And they're both saying, we're just trying to do the absolute best that we can do. And there are problems so large in this field, not literal field, metaphorical field, that we ourselves cannot fix. They are literally as large as the earth. So all we can do in the moment is be as faithful as we can with this small corner of the world and do our absolute best. And yet we hope that one day this might be better. And their conversation as I listened to them was to me very much revealing of all kinds of conversations that all of us could have in our respective fields. Healthcare, service, um, academics, whatever you want, every single business or profession that you could be involved in if you're a working adult, every single student in this room could sit down and say, if you really want to talk about it, there are lots and lots and lots of problems in this world. They are not so complicated that we have no idea how they can be untied. All we know is we have just this little string in our hand and we are trying to do our absolute best. And there is a, a kind of faithfulness that God calls to his people to say, you may be one of the only ones in the world, it feels like, that recognizes the path of the righteous. And it may feel like this knot is so big and complicated and untangible that you are like Israel and you're saying, won't God just sort of show up and reveal his hand and so the majesty of God is on display and all this stuff can be fixed because I cannot fix it. I can only be faithful with my little part. It just feels like I am laboring and laboring and laboring and nothing is being delivered. So you have the way of discomfort, you have the way of kind of agony, and you have the way of distraction. And what's 
revealed in this text is actually the way of agony is the way forward for the people of Israel. The easier path of distraction of not considering the way the world is, is not the way forward for the people of God. Because down that road, you are tempted to believe that all of your petty little gods will actually do something for you. And when you go down that road, you are actually contributing to the dysfunction, to the oppression of the world. You are feeding the powers and empires that are actually arrayed against the God who lies on the road of agony. And this is the profound discomfort of this text. That actually what God wants you to do is put your feet on this path where you say, my eyes are open. I can see. And it it fills my guts with sadness and hunger. And a lot of times, that is just not what we would like to choose for ourselves. I actually just don't want to feel that way about the world. And unfortunately, a lot of times, people use church to not feel that agony. You'll come and find a different version of Jesus who will say to you, actually, the only thing I want you to do is to feel better right now. That Jesus is nowhere in the Bible. You cannot read the Gospels without Jesus saying the most uncomfortable, annoying things. When I read the Gospels with college students, and we're actually paying attention to the words that Jesus says, they are so difficult. They are so universalizing. And they're so, at times, heavy, it feels like. I mean, put yourself in the, way, the shoes of the rich young ruler and hear Jesus say, sell everything you have. If you're looking outside that text, you look at that and be like, that poor dummy who couldn't do what Jesus said. But you and I are the dummy. Have you ever been in that position and heard Jesus say that to you? It is profoundly disturbing. The Jesus of the Bible is the God who meets you on the way of agony, who messes with the ecosystem of your life and says, I want you to see the way that the world truly, truly is. And you are not allowed to comfort yourself with your things or other people or the objectives of your own, of your own heart and your own mind. You must instead look to me. You must look at the world in the way that it is and you must see that the only one who can save you, who can save this place, is Jesus. This is actually, though, a liberating word. Because you and I feel the truth of this all the time. 
Whether we allow ourselves to dwell on it or not is a different question, but we feel it kind of in the background of our life all the time, this sort of low-grade hum that is a warning sign, an alarm bell to us that things are not right. And until you see Jesus, you will just constantly be asking, why can we not just fix the world? Why can't we not just shut off the alarm bell? Why won't it just stop beeping at me, and it'll drive you nuts until you understand that the alarm bells of this world are actually telling you the truth. This world needs the majesty of God unveiled. If anything and everything is going to be set right, your hope cannot be anywhere except in Jesus. And look what he promises. He promises that if you will do that, if you will put your feet on what I have called this way of agony, you will find at the end of it resurrection. He says his final promise to the people is that he will raise them up out of the, the death that they have given themselves over, over to. In verse 18, he says, we have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. We've done nothing in all of our striving. But your dead shall rise. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust in this dying, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. The earth will give birth to the dead. What the final picture is, is the people of God then are called to find shelter in their homes while, the, while we wait for the fury of God to come, which sounds like, I don't know if that's a thing we should be cheering for, which, yes, you're right. That is something that's supposed to mess with you a little bit. But what is happening when the fury of God comes is all the things that are bringing out alarm bells in the world, the fracturing in the world that plagues us, the things that have tempted us into putting our trust in them, God is actually going to ride in and expose all of those things things. The final verse of, of this chapter is that all of the, the slain and hidden blood of this world will be unveiled and God will finally deal with the things that have been pushing in on us and we have been worried that nobody has seen. So if you are looking at the world and saying, is anybody seeing this? Uh, am I losing my mind? Is anybody else alarmed at this? Yes, God has seen. God cares. Those alarm bells, he has heard them and he will ride in and deal with them. And if you will stop your distraction and your satisfaction and your self-pleasuring and your self-focus and instead allow yourself to be discomforted, God himself will provide a truer and better comfort. And what you see in that is the God who comes to reveal himself perfectly in the person of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, who has, with his own eyes, seen everything that has plagued us and will trample over them and will bring that city to dust so that you and I can become the ones who will sing the song at the beginning of the chapter. God 
is wanting to put that song in your lips. All of you and I, we together, as we have longed and waited for God to come and do something about this world, God is promising, I'll put that song in your lips, that if you would see that you are the poor, if you would see that you are the needy ones, I'll put your feet on the dust of that city that has plagued you. But you must put your hope in Jesus. Nowhere else. So this morning, if you are being discomforted by this passage, if you are being discomforted by these thoughts that the world is actually really messed up, and I've tried, I've tried to not think about it for too long, I'm asking you to think about it today and to think about how you have self-medicated your way into distraction. What are the things that you have valued and thought, if I could just accomplish this, if I could align myself with this king, you know, it's one of the things that Isaiah says that we've had other masters, but you're the only one who's actually Lord. You're the one, the only one we can put our trust in. What are the things that you have pledged your loyalty to? What are the things that you have distracted yourself with and pleased yourself with so that you have inoculated yourself to the warning bells of this world? Leave those aside. They'll do nothing for you. Repent. Repentance is a good word. It's not an angry word. It's a beckoning word that you would come home to Jesus. Leave those things aside and come trust in Jesus to come and deal with the things that plague you outside and the things that plague you inside. Find your shelter in the city of God himself as he commits himself, has demonstrated to you that he will, will deal with the city that is arrayed against the city of God. And all you can do is hold your little string of the knot and do your very best. And you may do it through tears. But you are meant to then find your comfort not in the things that you do, but in the trusting that God will do for you. And he will unwind all that evil has done. And he will bring the dead to life and expose everything that has plagued us and weighed us down. He will ride out in his fury and his mercy and do what no one else could do. Would you put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning and let him save you for the millionth time over? as he will continue to do until that day comes. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this word. We confess to you that we don't want to be uncomfortable. We would rather live our comfortable American lives We'd rather rely on things that we control, the, the actual things that we have, the, the people, the responses that we can elicit, the, the goals that we achieve. God, we pray that you would forgive us for being aligned with those other kings, those other gods. Pray that you would deliver us into hope that is sure and steady and cannot, will not fail. We thank you, Lord Jesus that you have demonstrated yourself to be trustworthy and true.
We ask, God, that you would help us to be faithful, to take our comfort and shelter only in you. We need you to do even this. We cannot accomplish anything, but we know that you can do everything. We commit ourselves into your hand and trust that you will do exactly as we need. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.